Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. We had a really great discussion on Acts chapter 15 when we had our fellowship gathering last week, so I thought I would organize and share some of the other things that came up in that. One of them was, why does Paul call the Judaizers false brethren in Galatians 2.4, whereas in Acts 15, it says the Pharisees who were saying that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised were called believers. After reading the letter to the Galatians in its entirety, looking up the definition biblically of the word false there in Galatians, and also reading several commentaries like David Gusick and Matthew Henry, and also a couple of other blogs, and listening to Chuck Missler discuss this, I think that it's quite possible here that the false brethren that Paul is referring to in Galatians 2 are not the same ones referred to in Acts chapter 15, verse 5. As Paul begins talking about things in the letter to the Galatians, he seems to be directly referring to what occurred in as it is told in Acts chapter 15. So it seems like the first people who came in to spread this false doctrine were coming in secretively and to cause trouble, whereas the believers, the Pharisees who were believers in Acts 15, were just misinformed and hadn't matured to fully understand the freedom of the gospel. Then also there is the fact that when Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, these things have been thoroughly discussed by both Paul and by the apostles in Jerusalem, so that should have all been clarified. So anybody now continuing to teach this is doing so in direct opposition to what has been declared by all of the leaders, the apostles who know the gospel, who got it from Jesus. So Paul is coming down much more firmly in Galatians about this, about the freedom of the gospel, the total grace of the gospel, which is evidenced by the fact that he also discusses the fact that Peter and Barnabas got this wrong again when they were in public and were having to make public decisions about who to fraternize with. So Peter and Barnabas are obviously Christians, so just because they acted wrongly in this one instance does not make them false believers or false brethren. One of the Bible dictionaries defined false brethren as those who are just teaching what is wrong, not necessarily that they are deceptively coming in and not really Christians. So there is that possibility as well. All of it still goes together to show that you can have certain doctrines wrong and still be believers, but you should grow in the knowledge of the truth. And when it comes to clearly proclaiming the simplicity and the liberty of the gospel, that needs to be staunchly defended. Another thing that was brought up about Acts chapter 15 was how James became a pillar pretty quickly for not being one of the original 12. We can make the suggestion that as a half-brother of Jesus, 
he was around, James was around Jesus his whole life. So even though he was not one of the 12 and he obviously was not convinced about who Jesus was until after the resurrection, he had seen a lot of things going on his whole life. So that could have made his faith and understanding very solid once he got it. Someone else brought up that they had heard that the name James had been translated as James to be in honor of King James when the King James Version was put out, but that's been debunked as a myth. And also noticing that even though names can be a little tricky to translate sometimes, this doesn't alter the clarity of the scriptures. Another thing that came up was why the injunction to avoid blood and things strangled. And in particular, because later Paul teaches, particularly in Colossians 2.16, don't let people judge you about what you eat. It seemed worth noting that these guidelines about avoiding blood and things strangled are never emphasized again, whereas the sexual things are repeated many times as things that shouldn't be practiced. So again, these are not listed as requirements for salvation, but there could be some symbolism that we can um, gain an understanding of by researching it, even if we know that we're not under the law about it. In particular, the symbolism of life being in the blood has been around since Cain killed Abel. It is mentioned again in Genesis chapter 9 when God is giving some very specific instructions to Noah after the flood. And then it is also mentioned in Leviticus 17.11 where it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. There could also have been some things with Gentile customs um, where at this point, new, new Gentile Christians might have needed to clearly distance themselves from the appearance of idol worship and pagan ritual. And there's just the fact that strangling an animal seems unnecessarily cruel. But then we also got to be talking about rules versus circumstance. So there are other places in scripture that show that the rules were made for man, not man for the rules, as Jesus talks about the Sabbath in the New Testament. But there's even the instance where David ate the showbread when he was in need and that you were expected to save your animals on the Sabbath. Someone even gave the the more modern example of like with your kids, you tell them, don't leave the house without telling me. Well, unless, of course, the house is on fire. So bottom line, you need to act according to conscience. And if you think something is wrong, you shouldn't do it. I didn't look up that particular scripture, but you could probably find it. Then continuing with what was said in Acts 15, they point out that if the Gentiles want to learn more about the law, they can just visit the synagogues, but it is not a necessary part to be born again. So there is the dilemma of evaluating cultural and health parts of the law, even in New Testament teachings and head coverings came up there, and how to apply these things in humility without legalism and division. In Acts chapter 15, verse 28 was particularly mentioned where it says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Since there's no specific mention of the Holy Spirit saying something to them like there are in so many other places, we wondered if this was based on the Holy Spirit being in the church, indwelling believers, and so guiding them that way. Or was this based on what happened with Cornelius, where the Holy Spirit fell on him, so it seemed good to the Holy Spirit? 
Then we talked more about Paul and Barnabas's sharp contention. They had been called together previously in clear guidance, and there is not record of them asking guidance in this situation. While the narrative is neutral, not blaming either one, we find ourselves wondering if there was a better option that they missed because having such a contention comes across as negative. Interestingly, their decisions seem to be according to their general descriptions up until that point where Barnabas is the encourager and Paul is no-nonsense and kind of blunt. So why did they need to rely on John Mark anyway? Why was it a problem or was it only perceived as a problem when he left? It seems that this passage at least shows that they're still human. They were still men and God still used them both. And again, they all seemed to reconcile, indicating that Barnabas was correct in evaluating John Mark's character. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 